Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for gathering us all here together this morning so that we can, uh, with one voice and one heart and one mind, um, lift up the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and give you praise, praise that you are more worthy of than we can understand, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to understand more and more just how worthy you are to receive our worship uh, so that no matter what we're going through, whether life is easy or life is hard, we would be compelled by your greatness to sing your praises, Lord, uh, to be so drawn away from ourselves by your glory that we would delight to worship you no matter what trials we may be facing and no matter what pleasantness uh, we may be enjoying, Lord. Um, make us always ready to lift up your name. And Lord, we pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, teach us from your word this morning. May you cap captivate our attention as we read your word, um, because it is your word, not so much uh, people being captivated by what I'm saying, but by what they're reading in your word, Lord. May you... Uh, Ravish us with who you are. May you grow us in our love for you, in our desire for you, and our commitment to follow Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And I'll read that for us before we begin. Verse 18. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 17 just to get a little bit of the context from what we'd looked at uh, previously. So, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We've just made it through graduation season. For the most part, uh, all the ceremonies have come and gone, and it's likely that at many of those graduation ceremonies throughout the year, uh, or, or throughout this season, there was a famous poem read, and that poem is Invictus. And if I remember correctly, this same poem was read at my graduation. It was written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley. And what's the connection here? Well, last week we looked at what the Bible had to say about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And I want to read this poem 
to you, and I want you to think about which category of wisdom does this poem fit into. Is it godly wisdom, or is it worldly wisdom? So let me read this poem to you. It's short, four stanzas. Henley writes, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I want you to pay attention to that last stanza. And let me just read a couple verses from scriptures uh, to you that you can compare with that last stanza. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, in the King James Version, this is what he said. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. But Mr. Henley said in that last stanza, it matters not how straight the gate. Now let me read to you Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. John the Apostle writes, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and scrolls were opened, and another scroll was opened, which is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the scrolls, according to their deeds. But in that last stanza, Mr. Henley wrote, It matters not how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's worldly wisdom that leads a man to think that he can overpower or disregard the Almighty when it comes to the affairs of his soul. And the Corinthians, these, uh, this group of believers that Paul was writing to, they were dabbling in this kind of worldly wisdom. They had been saved out of this worldly wisdom, but they were being sucked back into that way of thinking. We saw um, in recent weeks how they were quarreling and how there was division that was eating up this body of believers. But that division was only a symptom of a deeper problem. The root cause of their divisiveness was their pride. Each one of them was trying to get the upper hand over against the other by riding the coattails of their favorite teacher. You remember back in verse 12 of chapter 1, you'll see that some of them had latched on to the name of Paul. Some had latched on to the name of Apollos. Some had attached themselves to Peter's name. And some had stooped so low as to use the name of Jesus in order to exalt themselves over their brothers and sisters in Christ. They had begun walking in accordance with worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that is obsessed with self, the kind of wisdom 
that uses others in order to promote yourself. And so Paul, in verses 18 through 25, he's moving to help them see that they're walking on a dangerous path. And how does he do that? He does that by showing them in these verses that to walk in accordance with worldly wisdom, it will eventually lead you to view the cross of Christ as foolishness because that is how the world in its wisdom views the cross of Christ. And if you walk in accordance with worldly wisdom, you're going to stop living a cruciform life. You're going to stop carrying that cross that Christ called you to carry in his footsteps because you will view it as foolishness because you've begun to conform your mind not to scripture but to the way the world thinks. Pride had begun to blind these believers and pride can easily blind us too. And so these verses are also for us. Even 2,000 years later, these verses could not be more relevant to you and me here today. And in just thinking how to organize this message in, in parallel with these verses just to help us track with what Paul is saying, we're going to see four truths about the blind arrogance of worldly wisdom, four truths that will humble us and enable us to see more clearly, truths that will remove the scales of pride from our eyes. And the first truth we'll see in verse 18, and it's this, worldly wisdom miscalculates the cross. Worldly wisdom miscalculates the cross. Read verse 18 again. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This verse, verse 18, is why when Paul first preached the gospel to the Corinthians, he did not do so, as he said up in verse 17, in cleverness of speech or as it literally says, in wisdom of word. Verse 18 is why he did not preach the gospel that way. When Paul preached the gospel, he did not try to pretty it up in order to make it palatable or acceptable or desirable to unbelievers because he says in verse 17 that if he had done that, it would have made the cross of Christ void. It would have emptied it of its power. I was trying to think of something to illustrate this concept with, and I thought back when I was growing up, um, we had a big tabby cat named Draco. His name probably gives you some insight into his personality, Draco. There were times when he would get sick, and the vet would prescribe pills for this cat to take, and that cat would not take those pills. And if you tried to force him to eat it, he would try to kill you or make you kill him before he would try to eat those pills. So we'd try hiding it in his favorite foods, but he would smell it. He had the nose of a bloodhound. He could tell that something was in there that was not his choice to eat, and so he wouldn't eat it. We'd try grinding it up into powder and hiding it in wet cat food, and he still he would not eat that food, even though it was his favorite, because he knew that pill was in there. And we, I'm sure, even tried cutting up the pill into smaller pieces and then spreading it out through more of his favorite food 
but he still would not take it. The only way you would be able to get him to eat that food was if you took the pill out completely. But then what was the point of that? He would still be sick. He would not get better. And it's the same with the one who is perishing, the unbeliever, and how he views the cross. In order to make the gospel acceptable to the unbeliever, to the one who's perishing, you have to take the cross out of the gospel. But by then, the gospel is no longer the gospel, and he cannot be saved by that crossless gospel. It's so detestable to him, he will not take it. But, verse 18 goes on to say, to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is not foolishness. Instead, the word of the cross is the power of God. When God opens your eyes to the the searing light of the holiness of God and also opens your eyes to the the great wretchedness of your own sin, then when you look at the cross, you will not see that cross as foolishness. That is because you will realize that the cross is the only way that you can be saved because God is so holy and you are so sinful that the only way for you to be reconciled with this holy God is if he becomes a man and pays the penalty for your sin himself. And the cross is where that happened. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, he took your sin, if you're a believer here this morning, he took your sin upon himself and he suffered the wrath of his Father, the wrath that was due you. And he died in your place and he rose from the dead showing that he paid your sin debt in full. And we're gathered here this morning. We're singing his praises because we view the cross as the perfect demonstration of the power of God. We are enamored by the cross. We don't think it's foolish. We think it's the opposite of that. But the world will never view the cross that way. The world will always see the cross as foolish unless God awakens the sinner's dead heart to see it as it really is, the power of God. And in light of that, in light of verse 18, in light of how the world views the cross, there's two dangers that we need to avoid when we seek to tell others about Christ. The first danger is this. We need to avoid worshiping the unbeliever's approval instead of God. When you proclaim the gospel to someone, don't chase that unbeliever's approval. Because before you know it, your gospel will have left out the cross and you will no longer be of any help to that person. To be sure, we we must be winsome. We must adorn the gospel with our love and our good works, but we must always remember that our love and our good works cannot save that person. Only the cross of Christ can save that person. So we must never leave out the cross. The second danger that we need to avoid is this. We need to avoid worshiping ourselves or worshiping some other believer instead of God. When you share the gospel with someone, don't seek to gain a disciple for yourself or for some teacher or for some 
denomination. Because if you seek to win a disciple for yourself instead of winning a disciple for Christ, you will seek to impress that person, that unbeliever, with your personality or your reasoning or your generosity or trying to impress them with that of some other teacher or some denomination or some local church. And when you do that, you will inevitably leave out the cross because you'll find that that unbeliever is unimpressed with the cross. And you so desperately want them to be impressed with you. And so you will jettison the cross from your gospel message. But you have to remember, you cannot save that person. That teacher that you're raving about cannot save that person. That local church or that denomination that you are so thrilled to be a part of cannot save that person. Only Christ crucified can save that person. So that's the first humbling truth in this passage. The second humbling truth we see in verses 19 and 20. And it's this. Worldly wisdom will not endure. Worldly wisdom will not endure. Verse 19. Paul goes on. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29 and verse 14. And in that context, God is declaring that he will destroy the wisdom of the worldly wise. And he will set aside the cleverness of the worldly clever. And that context is speaking of counselors in Jerusalem advising the king who were relying on their own wisdom instead of seeking the wisdom of God. And God says, I'm going to reveal, I'm going to show that their wisdom will come to nothing. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to set it aside. And then in verse 20, those first three questions, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul seems to allude uh, to a couple other passages of Isaiah. One is chapter 19, verse 12, and the other is chapter 33, verse 18. And I'm just going to read, for the sake of time, uh, Isaiah 19. So just a few verses from that chapter. Turn back to Isaiah 19. And we'll start in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 14. Isaiah 19, verse 11. This is a, an oracle to Egypt. Uh, God is instructing Isaiah to bring this oracle of judgment upon Egypt. That is who he is addressing. Verse 11, Isaiah says, The princes of Zoan, Zoan was a city in Egypt, the princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men, speaking to these wise men, these counselors, how can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? There's that, the echo that we see in 1 Corinthians of that question. Where are your wise men? Please let them tell you. 
and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. There was not a one of those wise men saying, listen, we need to repent and we need to start worshiping the one true God. None of the wise men of Egypt were saying anything close to that. And so God asks, where are your wise men? All of these self-professed wise men, none of them are turning me to you, so their wisdom is foolishness. And Paul, back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, he's asking the same type of questions that God was asking Egypt through Isaiah. And these questions boil down to this. Is there any expert wise man, any professional scribe, any uh, superstar debater who has been able to lead one single soul to salvation on the basis of his own worldly wisdom? And the answer is no, not a one. Why not? Because only the word of the cross can save. And it's that very word that Man in his worldly wisdom has rejected because he considers it to be foolish. And then Paul, in verse 20, he asks a fourth question. And that question is this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And clearly the implied answer is yes. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. I want you to picture with me a patient with a serious illness, and he walks into a room. And in this room, there's shelves on every wall. And on those shelves, there's countless of glass vials that are filled with a liquid. And among those glass vials, there's only one vial out of thousands that contains the cure to this man's disease. And this one vial is not hidden among the other vials. It's set apart in the middle of the room on a stand, a marble statue stand. And there's a spotlight shining down upon it, and there's a giant sticky note on it that says in big, bold letters, The Cure. And this patient, he comes into the room, and instead of seeing him go directly to the center of the room to grab that one vial, he spends his time just digging through the shelves on the perimeter of the room, trying desperately to find the cure. He's grabbing these vials, he's downing every single one, and he never comes to the one vial that has the cure. He, he wastes all of his energy just circling the room, circling, circling, pawing through all of these vials that cannot help him. And it is like that with how the worldly wise view the cross. Would we not consider that patient foolish? But it's the same with how the world views the cross. Just to help us in, understand, in understanding this, think back to Galatians 3, verse 1, which I read for us. The Galatians, they were other believers who were caught up in worldly wisdom. And remember what Paul says to them in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, it it was obvious. You came to know this, and now you're like that patient in that room turning away from the one cure and busying yourselves with all of these other vials. And that's what it's like with the world. The world busies itself with all of these other proclaimed, uh, claimed answers, but ignores the cross. And it's obvious, it's no secret that Jesus is the answer to man's deadly sin problem. There's no debate. We don't need to become expert debaters to prove that he is the answer. God has already proven it. The revelation about Jesus Christ was not written on a little scroll, hidden in a jar, hidden in a cave at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus was crucified on the cross, publicly portrayed for all the world to see. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he revealed himself to over 500 people all at the same time, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And then he sent that, uh, that group of 500 or more people to spread across the whole globe and proclaim who Jesus Christ is, that he alone can save men from sin. God has not made this hard for us to find this salvation. He has handed it right in front of our faces, right under our noses. And yet the world busies itself looking everywhere else except the obvious place, the Lord Jesus Christ. Has not God shown that to be foolish? Is that not foolish? And the Corinthians, they have gotten caught up in that foolishness by allowing themselves to be distracted from the cross by chasing their own egos. The third humbling truth we'll see in verses 21 through 24, and it's this, worldly wisdom rejects salvation. Worldly wisdom rejects salvation. Let's look at the the first half of verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. That verse that's saying that it was the wisdom of God, he designed this world to work in such a way that the world would not come to a true understanding of who God is on the basis of its own worldly wisdom. Why would God do that? Why would he work it out so that no one would be able to come to know him in a saving way through their own wisdom. Why would God do that? Well, the answer to that is found in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, 
for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. What does God not want people boasting in, in verse 23? He does not want them boasting in their own wisdom. He wants them boasting in him alone, giving him glory, not taking glory for themselves. So if man was able, on the basis of his own worldly wisdom, to come to a true understanding of God, what would man do with that? He would boast about it. He would credit himself. Look at what I have done. I have found God. I have achieved salvation. But that would deny God the glory that is due to him only. And so he has designed the gospel in such a way that only he will receive the glory. Now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at the second half of verse 21. So, because in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through its wisdom, because of that, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When a man humbles himself and he turns away from trusting in his own wisdom and instead he trusts in God and he trusts in God enough to submit himself to what the world considers foolish, God is pleased to save that man. And when God saves that man, God alone is glorified by that because that man did not come to God on the basis of anything within himself. It was purely the mercy of God that opened his eyes to see the truth. And God alone is praised in that. And then when we come to verses 22 to 24, those three verses, they basically say the same thing that verse 21 said, but in a different way and in an extended sense. Look at verse 22. Paul says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. They're trying, by their own wisdom, to achieve salvation, to, quote-unquote, find God. That's what they're trying to do. And they go about it by Jews asking for signs, Greeks searching for wisdom. So Paul, he mentions two groups of people, Jews and Greeks. And in doing that, he gathers up all of mankind into this verse. These two groups, they represent all of mankind. And again, what did the Jews ask for? They asked for signs. Some display of the power of God in order to prove to them that this really is the truth. And we saw this in the days of Jesus. They were constantly asking Jesus, what sign will you show us to prove that you are who you say you are? For example, John chapter 6 and verses 29 to 31 The context of this chapter is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the very next day, they track him down because they want more of what he showed them. They want some more free food. John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus is talking with this group of Jews that have tracked him down, found him. Listen to what he says in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he's telling them, believe in me, believe in me. But then listen to what the Jews say in verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they said this even though Jesus had, just the day before, fed a crowd of thousands from five loaves and two fish. But that was not enough. They need a a bigger and better sign than that. And people are often like that. They'll say that they will refuse to believe unless God does some miraculous sign in order to prove himself to them. That's one group of people. But you have another group of people, Greeks searching for wisdom. There are others who, like the Greeks, they need to be convinced by their reason. If every single question is not answered, if every single objection that they have is not adequately dealt with, they will not believe. They just will not believe. No matter what you tell them, no matter what you show them, they'll come up with some other objection to get you to run back home and figure it out. And by the time you've figured it out and you come back to answer them, they will have 50 more objections that they will lay at your feet and they'll keep you constantly running back and forth without them ever believing. And in each case, the case of the Jews and the case of the Greek, do you see that man is setting himself up as judge over God? Unbelieving, worldly wise man is expecting God to come before them, for God to plead his case to them, and for God then to go in a corner and wait patiently for man to render his verdict on what God has said. But listen to what Paul says in verse 23. I guess I got to go back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. He doesn't say, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Therefore, we come to the Jews with more and more signs. And we come to the Greeks with more and more wisdom, more and more arguments to try to convince them and and force them into the kingdom. That's not what he says. He says, they're searching for all of that, but we preach Christ crucified. As believers, Paul says, we do not accommodate man's prideful desire to maintain control and to judge God. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the very person that offends and embarrasses them the most. We preach the very person that sinful man must yield himself to, the very person that he must turn to and love above all others, and that is the crucified Christ. To the Jew who demands that God prove himself by the miraculous, Paul says, he goes on in verse 23, that to the Jew, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. And that Greek word is scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. To the Jews, crucified Christ is a scandal. A Messiah who's supposed to rule the world, but he's hung on the cross as a cursed criminal? Never, says the Jew. And he goes on. He says, uh, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. To the Gentile who demands that God prove himself by making sense to man. 
To that Gentile, Christ crucified is foolishness. This is what he says. This Gentile, this unbeliever, he says, So you're telling me that my life isn't all about me? And you're telling me that I am so evil and so helpless that in order to be saved, God himself had to become a man and die in my place? And you're telling me that even now, 2,000 years later, you still expect Jesus to come back because you think he rose from the dead. No, thank you. That's what they say. But not all have that attitude. Verse 24, Paul says, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the ones whom God has effectually called to himself in saving faith. From both the Jews and the Greeks, to them Jesus Christ is everything. He is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. Hopefully that's all of us here this morning. That to us, Jesus, crucified and resurrected, is all the sign we need to bow before him as our king. Jesus, the living word of God, he's all the reason, all the logic. He's all the wisdom we need to be convinced to abandon trusting in our own disastrous attempts to exercise our own wisdom. He's enough for us. He in himself is all the convincing we need. We don't need any more than to just look at the person of Christ and we see him and we say, he's the answer. He's the answer. And that brings us to our fourth humbling truth that we see in verse 25. And it's this, worldly wisdom overestimates itself. Worldly wisdom overestimates itself. It thinks that it's wiser than God. It thinks that it's stronger than God. But listen to what Paul says in verse 25. He says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as believers, we've come to know this. As believers, we have committed ourselves to the quote-unquote foolishness of God. That is, to the word of the cross, because we recognize that it is infinitely wiser than man's worldly wisdom. And we've entrusted ourselves to the quote-unquote weakness of God, that is, the Son of God clothed in human flesh and nailed to a tree only to rise again. We've committed ourselves to this person because we believe that he is infinitely stronger than man's strength. Now what does all of this have to do with the Corinthians' pride? Verses 18 through 25. What does this have to do with their pride problem that has been manifested in their division? Well, remember, each one was boasting in his or her own wisdom. Each one was seeking to elevate him or herself over against the others. So in order to humble these believers, Paul sets before their eyes Christ crucified. And he does that because Paul knows that boasting dies at the foot of the cross. You cannot draw near to the cross 
and still think that it's wise for you to pursue your own glory. The all-glorious Son of God became a curse for us, and he subjected himself to the mockery of the very men he created. And then he endured his Father's wrath, he, the righteous one, not so that we could continue to live for ourselves, not so that we could continue to make much of ourselves, but so that we would be reconciled to the Father through the death and resurrection of the Son, and that we would be enabled by his Spirit to live for him, for him alone. And so, the next time that you and I begin quarreling with somebody, seeking to lift ourselves up over that person that we've got a beef with, whether it's your spouse or someone at work or a brother or sister at church, what should we do? When we find ourselves sinning like that, quarreling, trying to defend myself, my honor, prove myself against this person, what do we need to do? We need to take a step back and with the eye of faith, we need to go and sit before the cross. And we need to take our fingers and stick them into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. And then we need to confess our pride to God and fall on our knees and wonder, how could I be so foolish to lift up myself when God Almighty himself humbled himself to save a wretch like me? How can I believe that and then go and pursue myself? I can't do that. And then we need to pick up our cross again and get back to following Jesus. That's what we do when we find ourselves quarreling with each other.